Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lickin' on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news relating to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call-in line is 646-716-4972. And now, here's your host of Lickin' on Lending, David Lickin. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. It is Monday, February 20th, and we are off to a great start on another program. We've been having the privilege of chatting offline with our special guest, Mitch Kider, who will be on the Hot Topics segment. Now, Mitch is coming on to talk about the upcoming uh, webinar, excuse me, workshop, uh, webinar, workshop in Dallas, and the MBA is putting on a mergers and acquisitions workshop, and uh, I get to moderate the Thursday super session it kind of goes all day and mitch is on the panel there so we brought him on to talk about mergers and acquisitions but seeing as the phh case is back in the news we're also going to get an update on that so you want to stay tuned all the way through to the end of the podcast to hear or to the second half of the podcast the hot topic segment where we'll be talking about these things very excited to have mitch back on with us again very good friend of the program and someone we really care for and uh, respect so much in his opinion. So looking forward to getting those. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals. And we're the proud recipient of the Innovation Award from Progress and Lending. Grateful for that. But we're just more importantly, just glad that you take time to share it with so many. Over 400,000 downloads and listens of our podcast, unique listens. It's a we're we're reaching an industry, and it's our honor that you would make this a part of your way of getting a, information. It's a good way. You're driving in the car, working out, another tool. Tell others about it. Appreciate you telling others about it, keeping the word going. Continue to expand the in the expand the awareness of this program. I want to say a special thank you to our sponsors, ArchMI for their innovative Rate Star program. Also, Motivity Solutions for providing real-time reporting and dashboard and scores cards as well as Velma, the efficient marketing machine for email. It's an email platform, and it works for you getting your message out to just exactly who you want to connect with. Very effective and powerful tool. Also, Simplifile, Nancy Alley and the team there have a real-time electronic communications exchange. Hear more about that a little bit later. As well as the Mortgage Collaborative, the power of the network. Also, we are grateful for our relationship and sponsorship of D&H, a technology company moving your world forward through technology. They have the innovative new Mortgage Bot all-in-one LOS system, which is also mobile-ready, very effective. And uh, there's only a few clients. They only have a few clients, 8,000 <laughs> clients, and they've garnered those over the last 140 years of being in business. That another statistic with 5,500 employees worldwide. Very successful company. I encourage you to check them out at dh.com or at the phone number 1-800-815-5592. Special thank you, of course, goes out to Alice, Andy, Joe, Paul, Sam, and all the special guests we have on the program for making this program so content-rich. Here's an update on conferences, MBA conferences and workshops. Um, go to You can always go to their website, the MBA's work, website, but also uh, Sam Garcia has it over on his website, Mortgage Daily. But we have the Mergers and Acquisition Workshop again this week, 23rd, 22nd through the 23rd, then March 1st through the 4th. The Mortgage Collaborative, the Winter Conference in Scottsdale, be at that. 
and then also the National Mortgage uh, Technology Conference put on by the NBA. That's going to be at the Hyatt Regency, March 26th through the 29th. We'll be doing a live podcast from D&H booth there. Be sure to swing by and look forward to seeing so many of our friends there. Also, we're going to be attending the LMA Conference. Uh, really interested, 2,500 people showing up for that conference. My gosh, well, I guess when you garner the market share that they have, I guess it's understandable you'd have that many people be there. So it's good to have you all joining us and uh, being here with us today. We're excited to have you be here, and we're also excited to have Joe Farr joining in on this okay. holiday. By the way, I should say happy uh, President's Day to everybody, Joe. My apologies for not saying that right out of the gate. So let's get on update, market update. No yeah. better place to get it from MBS Quote Line and the man himself, Joe Farr. Go. Your Just uh, confirm you can hear me because I was late getting on. I had phone issues. Yeah, yeah no problem. We do hear okay. you loud and clear. Wonderful. So, uh, Dave, today the markets are closed, so not much yep. to talk about today. Uh, so we'll go straight into last week. And, and to kind of set up last week, I want to go into the week before that, the, the week at 2.6 to 2.10. For the first half of that week, MBS prices uh, improved and really did so without any real uh, identifiable reason. And then they reversed themselves. Uh, just about all the gains that they'd seen Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday were reversed in the sep- second half of the week based on uh, the Trump announcement of an announcement to cut taxes. And then uh, uh, Fed President Bullard's comments about reducing the balance sheet. So, uh, you know, that week we saw improvement uh, first half of the week and then lost it all the second half of the week. Now, this most recent last week, we saw the same thing, but in the opposite order. Um, MBS prices fell for a good reason uh, the first few days of the week and then recovered it all right back uh, the, the last couple of days of the week without any real new information. So the drivers last week and the first half of the week were uh, Fed Chair Yellen's testimony to Congress. Uh, she used the phrase, it would be unwise to wait too long to raise rates. Um, so that was uh, her, her testimony was viewed as a little more hawkish, and, and uh, she did talk about the balance sheet. In fact, a lot of people are talking about the balance sheet of late, and uh, her comments were that they will begin to discuss what to do about the balance sheet in the next three weeks, uh, next few meetings. But she did make the comment that was uh, fairly definitive in that she said the committee had decided not to sell assets. And so, uh, you know, that's some relief to the uh, – the marketplace, that would be uh, really a difficult situation to overcome if they were to decide to start selling that. So it's more an issue of uh, what runs off, how much of that are they going to replace, how quickly are they going to stop replacing all of it. Um, Yeah, I have noticed uh, that the Fed purchases over the last uh, couple months have really diminished, as you might expect, with uh, uh, refinances uh, slowing down. Right. What What was 40 billion a month in replenishment. Um, the most recent estimate of purchases by the Fed is, is close to 25. So we're seeing a drop in that, but as a percentage of the actual MBS issued, it's probably not too far from uh, the same. So uh, then on Wednesday, strong data. Man, did you see the retail sales number? When you ex uh, auto, it was 0.8 tenths increase when only 0.4 tenths was expected. Uh, that was big. Uh, core CPI and core PPI uh, both exceeded expectations, and uh, and then the strong you know the manufacturing data. These are regional 
uh, reports, but uh, a couple really strong regional manufacturing reports, uh, all combined to cause, as I mentioned, MBS prices to fall first half of the week. Um, the recovery happened Thursday and Friday. Uh, yep. You know, first half of the week they dropped about 50 basis points, and then last half of the week they got just about all that back. Uh, looking at the week ahead, this week, Dave, there's this not be... a lot on the count. No, it's there, not. There's, there, there are Fed speakers now. There's Fed speakers. That's what's going to be very interesting. Yeah, it will that's... be. It will be. Yeah. The, the minutes of the February 1st Fed meeting will be released on Wednesday, and, and at 2 o'clock that could move the market, although with Yellen's testimony it's hard to imagine it would. Uh, and then uh, existing home sales on Wednesday, new home sales on Friday, consumer sentiment on Friday, and uh, and again beware of uh, uh, speakers. I think just about every every day this week, except maybe Friday. So, uh, but, and, and that has the potential of creating some real volatility in the market. I mean, every time you hear one of these speakers, and, and it, there is enough uh, number of. Um, Fed speakers that are Fed officials that are on both camps. So we, it's very likely we could have some interesting commentary coming from both sides. But do you see, based on what you're seeing within the Federal Reserve and what you're watching on television, because I know you guys have them going on all over there, uh, staying on top of what is happening in the news because it does impact the markets, do you have any sense of is there a greater shift to more dovish or hawkishness? I, I would assume more of a hawkish tone is starting to become more prevalent at the Fed. Any thoughts on that? Uh, I agree with that statement, Dave. I think that unquestionably there's a, a move toward a, a realization that the economy is getting closer to a point at which it needs less accommodation. Uh, inflation's rising not only in the United States but also across the world. So, uh, you know, there, there is certainly a greater uh, expectation of, of more hawkish monetary policy. No, I mean, there's no real chance of seeing, um, uh, at least not in the near term, um, any sort of additional accommodations coming. Interesting. That will be uh, – this is going to bring about the potential volatility, and I think that even though we're starting to see more hawks going over to that side of the fence, I think anyone that sounds dovish could send off some interesting signals and comes back to one thing, Joe, and you know what that is? How do people exist without yeah. MBS quote line? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> you got a great service, a great website. I love the consistent, uh, the, the 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 condensed nature. It's consistently good all the time. But as the the word I was looking for is condensed, it's really got tight to the point information, so you can make decisions and advise your borrowers, listeners. So you want to learn how to get signed up? Stay tuned. We're going to be right back with this instructional message on how to get signed up with MBS quote line. Looking for that competitive edge? MBS Quoteline delivers live market coverage for originators. Get up-to-the-minute mortgage market news and analysis as events occur. Get MBS prices as trades happen. Straight to your computer, email, cell phone, or PDA. Know in advance when your investors will reprice. Make better lock float decisions and increase your income. Be the expert your clients expect and know what's moving interest rates right now, tomorrow, and beyond. MBS Quoteline, delivering live market coverage for originators. Learn more about MBS Quoteline today at MBS mbsquoteline.com mbsquoteline.com 646-716-4972 The Lickin' on Lending Show is back. Here is your host, David Lickin'. 
so good to have you be with us. So good to have all of you with us. Oh, man. Need another cup of coffee here. But anyway, it's good to have you here. Normally, Paul Mallo would be here in this segment talking to us about the headlines. Uh, I've got the latest headlines are up from February 17th. They're taking the day off. So, Paul and company, everyone there at IMF News, enjoy your day off. Enjoy the President's Day. So, anyway, let's move right on into Alice Alvey. Alice, it is always fun to hear of you on and I know you're as excited to hear from Mitch on this, uh, what's going on in M&A, and more importantly, even, well, as important as the update on what's going on. But why don't you give us an update on what you're seeing out there at this point? Sure thing, Dave. So a couple of things. Um, first of all, I think uh, maybe what we'll be picking uh, Mitch, Mitch's brain about is that the U.S. Court of Appeals for D.C. Um, grants and bank hearing for CFPB, which essentially the court is allowing the CFPB to defend the constitutionality of its leadership, leadership structure. So this means that the CFPB can continue to operate as is until further notice and that Trump cannot fire Cordray unless it is for cause and that the October 2016 decision um, has been vacated. So I know there's some legal jargon and if this, then that <laughs> scenarios that we can get clear, cleared up from <laughs> as to what this all really means. So I know one thing I want to make sure folks um, are aware of is that the Conference of State Bank Supervisors has published a, AML, a BSA AML toolkit. And, it, you know, so when you read it, you go, okay, this is great. I've got an Excel spreadsheet that I can essentially, essentially conduct a self-assessment of my compliance with BSA and AML. Now, for lenders, when you open up this spreadsheet, you go, what the heck does this have to do with me, right? This is all bank stuff, and in my opinion, it's a 10,000-foot list of questions. Um, so th- this is a heads-up to go get the tool, take a look at it, no matter whether you're a lender or a bank. And at these high-level questions, essentially, you have to determine what's the best drill down for your type of institution. And then on top of that, what I found really interesting about the design of the spreadsheet is our company has conducted AML audits for lenders you know, for years since the regulation came out. And we've looked at various risk models that they've gotten either from competitors or they've developed themselves, and then we have our own. And this one takes it to, uh, there's another level. So companies are familiar with assigning a risk rating, right? And then in that rating, say you're using numbers one, two, three, you come up with what's my average of my overall rating to come up with my overall rating by the time I add up these ones, twos, and threes. What this spreadsheet helps define and you should check into is now factoring in mitigation that you have taken. So maybe you identified you have a risk that would be high and classified as a three, but you've also put in some measures to mitigate that risk. Maybe you identified it six months ago, you put some controls in place, and this spreadsheet goes on to show you can factor that in, that I've put controls in place, here are the results, and here's how this has potentially reduced my risk. So essentially you end up with a gross risk factor and a net risk factor, similar to a Fannie Mae gross and net defect rate, right? Uh, So that's what I like about this spreadsheet. So you should all go check it out. It's from the CSBS, which is, you know, a different source than maybe we're used to getting all of our AML and information from. And it um, has some instructions to use. It's an Excel spreadsheet template that I highly recommend because of the benefit of getting to this net number. And then, of course, any type of spreadsheet like this is a fabulous roadmap that you can make for yourself 
say, and here are my action items to get me into a low-risk bucket for my AML risk. Uh, so that was one of the main things I wanted to get a chance to talk to our listeners about today. Uh, we are watching other legislation, but as you know, all of that is uh, nothing is firm yet as we watch what might be happening with the Consumer Choice Act. There's some rumors out there about what might be in it, but let's wait until we see a real draft before we start talking about it here. Uh, so, so far, no big movement coming in on any new legislation for Dodd-Frank, but still wait and see because there is definitely some, com- some coming our way. I'll pass it yeah. back to you, Dave, and uh, good. talk to you with Mitch. Very good. Looking forward to getting Mitch's input on all of this. And uh, what does this mean? And then is really more change really what our industry needs? That's a question we're going to go to Mitch with a little bit later on in the Hot topic segment. Stay tuned all the way through. We're going to be right back after a couple of brief words from our sponsors. If you have questions about mortgage regulations, Indicom Mortgage U has free answers. If you need ideas about how to reinvent your organization, Indicom Mortgage U will share great ideas. When you need help at any step of the loan process, give us a call or send an email. The Indicom team of experts have been helping mortgage players from origination through servicing for over 30 years. Your success is our focus. Whether it's a quick question or long-term support, portfolio, conventional, or government lending, it's a competitive market. So let Indicom Mortgage U give you the edge. Simplifile has technology that gives you the ability to collaborate with settlement agents via real-time chat and messaging, allowing you to track changes, send, receive, and validate documents, as well as obtain status updates and deal with issues as they arise. All of this in a real-time electronic communication exchange. And best of all, you have a complete audit trail of all communications. To learn more, go to Simplifile.com or call our good friend Nancy Alley at 1-800-460-5657. So good to have you with us, everybody. Or normally would be going over to Sam Garcia, but I'm looking for him on the setup, on the files here. And Sam, I'm not seeing you here. And so if by chance you're dialed in on a different number, please text me and let me know. We'll get you on here in just a little bit. So let's head on over to the Profit Doctor. I had barbecue with Andy Shell on Saturday. It was his birthday on Sunday, so we're going to spare singing happy birthday to him on the radio program. Spare all our listeners that, but it is fun to wish you a happy birthday on air, Andy. And I hope you had a great uh, special day. It's good to have you here with us. Love to get your perspective on everything that is going on as it relates to the accounting world and profitability. What you got, friend? Well, thanks, Dave. It was great to have lunch with you at Opie's Barbecue and in, uh, on the way to Marble Falls, so yeah. thanks for getting together. Um, you know, I wanted to make one quick comment about Alice's uh, presentation. Um, if You know, listening to her talk reminds me of she's standing on the, she's standing on the street corner handing out she, – she's got this, this big bag of bars of gold – Gold bullion. She's got these <laughs> bars of gold. She's standing there on a streetcar, yeah. willing, handing it out to people, and people are walking by, going, "Eh, it's too heavy. Uh, I don't like gold. I, I prefer black." Or you know, like, they're 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 <laughs> not chunks of coal, coal lighter. Bars of gold. They reject her because they they don't understand that she's handing them thousands and thousands of dollars of information, and they're like, "Eh, yeah. it doesn't matter. It's not applicable. I don't think we, I don't like the way it looks." Not our listeners, up. though. Our listeners, I think, get it. I think that because we have a unique select group of listeners. But you're right. I think, by and large, a lot of people that 
listen to the wisdom that comes out, as well as for yourself. I I think the industry is large is a bit complacent on staying on top of it. But what's unique about our radio program, I keep coming back to this, and you raise a great point, is it self-selects people that are most serious <laughs> about this interest. That's true. And it really is, because who's going to take the time to listen to a podcast? Only those that are really interested. I share that for those that are advertisers or sponsors of it. Also, if you're listening, you're part of an elite group. It's not because we're the best. It's because you are taking the time to listen. So, sorry, I had to jump in on that. Exactly, Dave. Well, you you better go back and rewind Alex's comments and go get that AML testing tool she's talking about and run it. It is good. Because you've got to have it. you know, David, so I had a great birthday uh, dinner last night with all the kids, and, um, you know, they're celebrating my 60th birthday, so we toasted to another 60 years. And, another uh, decade. James said, yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, so James said, so what are, the, what are the pearls of wisdom? And I said, uh, you know, part of it is, part of it is decision confidence. It, it's Ooh. being able to stop second-guess yourself. You know, the, the whole notion of uh, measure – Measure twice, cut once. Just, just be confident that the, the decisions you're making are are correct, and don't go back and beat yourself up. So make the best decision available. Make make the best decision you can based on the information available, and then move on. Now you may have to re adjust, and you may have to correct because you discover that there's new information or more complete information. But be confident that the information is complete and the decision you made is the best it can be. And, and how that applies to mortgage bankers that, that, that I see is, and again, it's sort of self-selecting because the people that hire us to help them with stuff want to be better. Um, but but I, I do see mortgage bankers who, who um, don't know what complete information is. They, they, they maybe guess. They assume that they know. They go with their gut alone. They just think it's going to be better, so they – you know, build a new operations center and hope volume continues to climb. They don't consider the fact that we're having margin compression with everybody fighting for the business, and they assume their gain on sales is going to get bigger. So when I talk about make the best decision based on the complete information you have available, I think that the, what complete information is is a little bit bigger than just because you feel like it. And so right. it starts with financial data. You've got to have good financial data. You've got to know your profit by originator, profit by branch, your gain on sale by product. You've got to have a 60-day cash flow forecast. And you have to have a sense for anticipating the dynamics in the market. If you're listening to Looking on Lending every week and you hear what Joe has to say, and he talks about the Fed easing, not easing, QE, two or three or four going away or not, and, or the liquidating, all these have impacts on rates, and rates going up means fewer people are buying. Generally, is the way that normally works, not always, but look at the MBA statistics. So just, you know, be a sponge. Listen to the information around you, and then if you don't understand what some of the information makes, just call Joe Far up and say, Joe, why does the why is it that the producer price index moved this way and rates went that way? I, I don't understand how the, let's help me understand the connection. You just give him a call, talk to him about it. There's a yeah. tremendous amount of information and resource on licking on lending that's available for people mm-hmm. to just learn more. And so that's that's my point, Dave, is decision confidence is based upon um knowledge and intuition and information and just the, the, the combination of all of it together lends people business executives to make 
the best decision. Now, there's always dynamics that come into play that you can't predict, but you can get you can get closer than people sometimes do by just guessing. So I'd encourage people to not guess, get as much information as you can, so you can be confident and sleep at night that you've made the best decision available. So there you go, Dave. That's that's good. Okay, so I've got I've got a point. I got a question for you. It's kind of rhetorical. So what is another component of decision confidence? What's another component of it? Think about it for a second. When, as you get older, you know, you just had to celebrate another decade, clicked over, you know, it's 60 years old, you told everyone, so it's out there, or you don't look it, you, I don't know how you don't have gray hair, I don't understand that, but anyway, especially doing this business as long as you have. But what's another factor about wisdom and that comes with age? You listen to things going on. You do not assume you know everything. And I think when you assume you don't know everything, you can enter into a conference because you're out there learning and studying it. You're always searching in to get that information. That's why we created this radio program years ago. I'm not yeah. trying to talk about that, but it is, it, there is a great resource. But, you know, for example, Mitch Kider's interview of his three sons, is still being one of the most downloaded programs. Why? It speaks to the fact that people are hungry to learn how to run the balance of their life. That's one of the things that we talk about. Your stuff that you offer, Alice's stuff. I, I think that this, you know, confidence is moving forward as you get older. Is wisdom is because you're you know what you don't know, and you're gonna go get it. Final thoughts on that before we go out? Yeah, exactly right, Dave. You know. You know more about what you don't know, and the more that you realize you don't know, the less you realize you do know. And I think age drives wisdom, and wisdom is the antidote to arrogance. So yeah. I, I suffered badly from arrogance as a young man. I was, you know, top of my class, and just I was just as good as You're a guy. Like that, I yeah. was just, it was horrible. It was horrible. I was so bad. I was so mean to people who couldn't keep up with me. It was awful. So it was, uh, was not a very nice uh, young man, and so I was very arrogant. So wisdom is the antidote uh, to arrogance. And I would just encourage people to stop, drop, and roll. Listen. You know, the, yeah. the, the, when I was a kid, they had Smokey Bear come in and talk about what to do if your house caught on fire. That was before they had smoke detectors, right? So yep. stop, drop, and roll. And I would do the same thing. When there's a crisis in your business, stop, drop, and roll. Think, pursue, pursue truth. Pursue truth in everything you do. Yeah, that fits in. I was taking a driver's ed class because I was traveling through my little community here a little too fast, and uh, the officer saw a need for me to take a driver's ed class. So I spent Saturday watching videos. All that's in there. It's so important. Common sense, one of those things we get more of as we get older, you'd think, hope so. But the key of it is just searching it out. Thank you, Prophet Doctor. Very good information. Always a pleasure to have that. All right. Well, we're going to run over to Jim Jump. Hear about the Rate Star program. It's always fun to have our sponsors be here. Talk about programs, the innovative Rate Star program. Again, Jim is the chief marketing officer there. We're going to hear a little bit more about it. It is a distinct advantage if you're taking advantage of it. To learn more, stay tuned. Thanks, David. We're proud to be a sponsor of your program, and we're excited about the success of Archimize RateStar. Our dynamic, risk-based pricing program gives LOs a real competitive advantage. With RateStar, lenders can qualify more eligible first-time borrowers, including millennials. Reach out to them with revolutionary RateStar. That is a revolutionary tool, and I recommend you getting a hold of it. So we also talk regularly about KPIs and Motivity Solutions, their dashboard solution, has recorded a series of really cool APIs. We've got about a dozen of them up here, and I want to play one. And, and you look at the different ways, and the one thing that haunts a lot of companies is resubmits. 
So listen to John Maynell talk about how he's, by the way, he's vice president of client services there at Motivity. Let's hear about how you can measure, monitor, and manage the number or the average resubmits. Thank you, David, very much. Great to be here as always. And this week we have another underwriting-focused key performance indicator, and the KPI is average resubmits per file. This single measurement can not only help lenders develop consistency in underwriting and optimize departmental processes, it can also guide business users to examine contributing tasks in processing that affect this number. KPIs in practice, and you might say by definition, are constantly on display and updated in near real time, making it much easier to pinpoint however many friction points may be combining to produce a given effect, like number of resubmissions, which can also vary by product type, another aspect that the KPI can uncover, demonstrating once again that what gets measured gets results. And with that, Dave, I will turn it back to you. Thanks very much again. Good. You know, one of the requirements I have of our of our advertisers, those advertisers, is it's just you can't sit in here just promote. You got to sit and talk about what are the benefits. I don't think that anyone does a better job of that than our friends over at Motivity. So good to have you with us, everybody. Again, for those of you that are just tuned in, a lot of people already dialed in from all over the country, listening on the internet. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day off. Some some are got the day off, some don't. With the President's Day. But joining us today in the Hot Topics segment, we have Mitch Kider. Mitch is the chairman and managing partner of Wiener Bratz, Kider PC, a national law firm specializing in the presentation of financial or working, representing financial institutions and residential home builders, real estate settlement service providers. I mean, if you're in the mortgage industry, Mitch can represent you. I should just say he takes care of, as we say here in Texas, all y'all. So all y'all can just tune in and enjoy the wisdom we have with Mitch. Mitch, so good to have you here joining in. And I know this is a holiday for you, but uh, but knowing you, you work you work all kinds of crazy hours. So it's good to have you here, Fred. Appreciate you being back. Great to be back with you, Dave. Thank you. It's it's fun. I was going, anytime I have a guest coming on, I look at past statistics and Mitch, we were speaking about how this program is a repository. You know, it, you can go back and listen to lots and lots of programs. It's interesting the number of programs that, or the the rate at which a program gets downloaded. Years is one of the highest. Years and David Stevens. There's a few others out there. Are some of the highest rated downloads, and it's because of the content you provide to our listeners. So we're grateful that you took some time to provide some good content. Help us get educated. So let's start off by talking about the latest update with the PHH case. As most of our listeners know or may recall, you are the individual you represented, your legal counsel for outside legal counsel for PHH, and you brought this all the way forward and have been through this and involved in it, intimately involved in it, all the way through. So based on the latest headlines, give us an update on that. All right, Dave. Sure. Well, that's right. I've been with uh, representing PHH in this matter since the very beginning, and I continue to do so. So the latest headlines is the uh, United States Court of Appeals for the uh, District of Columbia decided to rehear the argument on the constitutional structure of the CFPB. Mm, okay. uh, what that means, what that means, is that there will be ten judges that will once again take a look at the issue as to whether or not a single director independent agency, the CFPB, is constitutional, is, is 
correct under Article 2 of right. the Constitution. What it also means, though, is that they're not really looking at the rest of the case. Remember, That's this began as a RESPA matter. Yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's actually really interesting and in in you know in one sense very good and very good for the industry itself remember there were four rulings in this particular case the constitutional issue was just one of those four rulings the other three rulings was due process which is constitutional in and of itself but fair notice the argument was that the CFPB had a brand new interpretation of RESPA contrary to everything that was put out before it for a 40-year period of time, and it was not fair to impose that interpretation without notice. And the court said, absolutely, that is absolutely wrong. There's no due process there. Then the other argument was that the plain language of RESPA was contrary to the interpretation that the CFPB was utilizing. And the court absolutely agreed with that as well. And finally, the CFPB was suggesting that there was no statute of limitations. In other words, they could sue you 100 years from now for something that happened today under RESPA if they brought that administratively, and the court said absolutely not. Now, when you look at the latest order from the Court of Appeals that says they'll have an en banc hearing, they designated three specific questions, and all of them really go to constitutional constitutionality of the structure itself. So that is what they're going to look at, and that's a matter of whether or not having a single director that basically is not accountable, not accountable to the legislative branch, not accountable to the executive right. branch, uh, can only be removed by the president for cause, not without cause, whether or not that violates our separation of powers, whether or not too much power is put in the hands of one individual, rendering that unconstitutional. And, you know, we had a very strong opinion from a a three-judge panel uh, at the Court of Appeals that laid out exactly why that's not constitutional. Now, that's a big issue. It's a very big issue. And so now the full court said, okay, you're asking us to look at it, to have all of us look at it once, and we'll do that. And so, but they're but I they're only PHH looking at one one, one aspect of it, right? Is just the constitutionality. So, by the way, Alice, Joe, and Andy, before we move on to the other M and A topic, get your questions ready because we're going to get all your questions in on this segment, so we don't wait till the end of the program. We're going to do these in two parts. So, why is it? I'm really curious as to why you you think they did just this one part of the four-part ruling? You kind of got into it, but does it make sense? Another way to ask the question, does it make sense? Is it logical? Is this – go ahead. Yes, it makes sense. It makes sense because it's a big issue when you strike down the structure of an agency based on constitutional grounds. That has a lot of implications, and that's how, you know, and and that will teach the legislature as to how to structure agencies on a going forward basis itself. Now, the RESPA issues are really big issues as well, and actually for the the industry, probably even bigger issues, quite frankly, because RESPA is one of those statutes that has enabled regulators to kind of dictate the way you can and can't otherwise do business. But the RESPA rulings 
okay? Uh, well, what the CFPB did with RESPA was so contrary to the language of the statute, to the way it was interpreted for more than 40 years itself, that what you're seeing come down over here is a court that looks at it and says, okay, well, we're not going to do anything about that. That's absolutely clear over here. Now we have this unique issue as to the constitutional structure. And you know what? It's important enough that we'll all take a look at it. Yeah. I think, Dave, in the end, I, I think we're in great shape on the constitutional issue as well. It does not really concern me that the whole court wants to look at it. I think that's just fine. Well, I've got so many more questions, but I want to get over to Alice, Joe, and Andy in that order. So, Alice, do you want to have some follow-on questions on this important topic? So, uh, yes, thanks, Mitch, for the clarification. I'm glad that uh, you, in the last thing that you said, you thought that this should be okay, that the constitutionality of it yeah. should be some relief uh, there, yeah. upheld. Um, do you see them taking up the well, other aspects that, of that all is, in the future? So, so, Al, let's just make sure so the listeners understand. I believe mm -hmm. the decision that it, the structure is unconstitutional should be upheld, and I believe it, it, it will be upheld. I think, right. that, yeah. I think I think yeah, I think the three judge panel did a very good job job analyzing that and coming up with the decision that they came up with. The original three judge panel. Okay, so you think we'll go back to the original yes. decision. Okay. Good job, Joe. Yes. Well, that, that leaves open, Mitch, the question of where do we stand regarding things like statutes, limitations. Does that uh, prior court ruling hold, and, and should people not be concerned about the CFPB going back the way they did at PHH? Well, so that's a really that's a really good and really interesting and difficult question as well. It's clear from the order of the court that they only want to look at the constitutional ruling, and that's what they asked to be brief in their papers itself. But when the court decides to hear a matter on bonk, they set aside the decision of the uh, 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 of the three judge panel that looked at it before. I would hope, I would hope that the CFPB would know and understand uh, now what the plain language of RESPA is and know and understand the fair notice and due process issue as well as the three-year statute of limitations. And actually, in the last couple of matters that I've seen come down from the CFPB, I think they actually went back to the old interpretation of RESPA itself in making the determinations that they made in the consent orders that they did. So I, I think they, I think, and I hope that they learned that particular lesson. Yes. But ultimately, ultimately when the decision comes out from the full on bonk court, then it will be absolutely clear. Very interesting. Andy. Well, hey, Mitch. Um, well, I've, I'm going to circle back to a practical question, but I'm, I'm just I have a little bit of a philosophical question: Is how did they get it so wrong? How did how can we establish? You know, the Congress established uh, CFPB through Dodd Frank, as I understand it all, and 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 having a single dictator, and when no one, no other agency is like that, and then, and yet the Congress did it, and that's now taking the court ten years to unwind some of it. So the first part is just the philosophical side of this, of you know the balance of powers among the, the executive, legislative, and judiciary branches and, and making things be reasonable for people. And then the other side of this is what, how does this affect our business today? 
can we make some decisions so, based on what happened? So great questions, and and the right characterization when you say they got it so wrong, and you ask how they got it so wrong. And you have to remember that Dodd-Frank came about, while it was enacted in 2010, it came about as a result of what happened in 2007 and 2008, and, you know, a virtual economic collapse that many people blamed on the real estate finance industry itself. And so this was, this was a reaction to that. And it's interesting to me that after Dodd-Frank was passed, both Senator Dodd and, and Representative Frank uh, decided not to run for re-election anymore. They were done. <laughs> they thought this was, their, uh, yeah. this was their parting gift to the United States, I guess, in, in their deal. own minds. Uh, but, but they did. They got it all wrong. And listen, when the framers of the Constitution put, put it together, there were three branches of government. There's the executive branch, there's the legislative branch, and there's the judiciary. There was no place there for an independent branch. Later, some independent agencies came into existence, the SEC, the FTC, uh, but all of those agencies were commissions bipartisan commissions with staggered terms, which meant that there was an inherent check and balance in the system itself. And that was upheld by courts. But never was that expanded to a single director unaccountable to anyone else. And I think that it came about and they got it all wrong for political reasons, in all honesty. It was nothing more than political reasons. They viewed this as an opportunity, given what happened in 2008, yeah. to step in there and dictate certain terms that just are wrong. And just so wrong. that's where Flat we are wrong. today. Uh, it reminds me that's of when I was at Dulles Airport, standing in line. Senator Dodd is literally right in front of me, standing in line. I, I thought he had his own private line he could go through, but he's standing there, and everyone, we had just finished up an industry event there in D.C., and, uh, and so everyone's going, that's Senator Dodd, that's Senator Dodd. So I go, well, you know, I'm not too shy about these things. So I tap on his shoulder and said, Senator Dodd, so nice to see you. I thought you made a comment about him standing in line there. And he goes, no, i got to do it. Same line as all the rest of you all. And, uh, and I said, Got a question for you. If you could redo and have a mulligan on Dodd Frank, would you change any aspects of it? He got a biggest smile on his face. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of things. There's some things we tried to do, and he, he was quick to say we hastened to get something forward in, in reaction to, or in response to what we perceived as a lot of abuse and out of line. But, oh, yeah, there, there are a lot of things like anything, you know, you, you wish you could go back and do. So I thought it was a very transparent moment, and uh, uh, it was a really good conversation. We sat engaged, and then others they saw I was talking to them, the others engaged in it. So it was a really interesting conversation. Of course, sat with Barney Frank a few times since then, and uh, – uh, yeah, Barney's a little more stalwart. He stays in his uh, lane pretty quick. He's not going to say he did anything wrong or any such thing, but Senator Dodd was, you know, was a little bit more conciliatory. Let's shift over to the topic, which we really invited you to be on here. This was important, and thank you so much for going into those areas, and you do such a good job in a prompt basis covering all these topics, but you're so familiar with it, being PHH's attorney and, having, and being there every stage. But let's talk about mergers and acquisitions. Mitch, we are definitely seeing some private equity and other familiar funds, similar funds, come into the industry and are starting to show a real interest in making investments in this industry. I get concerned about the legal issues around that. If you could comment about the legal aspects and the issues that are arising from these deals, I'd like to start there. 
Okay, well that's fine. Let's let's start with private equity, for example, because there are a lot of funds that are coming into the industry right now, and it's probably a good time and a good opportunity for funds to uh, to be stepping in, in in the industry. So you do so, think it is a good when time? You're dealing, you do think it's a good time? Well, I think I I think it's a good time. Yes, I think it is a good time for, uh, to step into the industry. I do. I think there are opportunities that are out there right now. I think there are some very willing sellers uh, that are out there. And uh, I I think that now's the time that you build up your company and you build up your market share. Uh, And so I I do think I do think it's a good time. And I do think there's a very good future to this uh, to this business and to this industry itself. And I think that they're recognizing that, quite frankly. But there are always issues when you're dealing with private equity. And we represent a number of different private equity uh, firms that are you have either stepped into the business or are looking to step into the business. You know, I started off this way. Most of them, most private equity that wants to step into the business, they uh they don't have the uh they don't have the licenses. So they need a platform uh, and so most of those deals are going to be stock acquisitions. And, and there are always questions when there are stock acquisitions as to potential liabilities and legacy issues and things of that uh, sort. Uh, but, you know, a stock deal gives, gives that private equity firm a ready-made platform. So that's, uh, that, that's an important thing for them, and most deals are structured that way. Some, in all honesty, just want a partial interest. Uh, but what are the legal issues and the business issues that come with a partial uh, partial interest? Stru- structuring it properly so they get their preferred return. That's what they want. They want dividend preferences during the term of the relationship and at liquidation. And those become really important negotiating points, obviously. Right. Right. Uh, you can tell that. Well, and, and, you know, for ahead. the most part – go ahead. No, no. I, I, no I, what I was going to say is – yeah, finish your thought there. I want to... Well, what I was going to say is, you know, when private equity steps in as well, they're really buying a management team. That's what they're doing. They're not just saying, okay, we can step into this business and just run it ourselves. So they're buying a management team, and oftentimes they limit the amount of control that they have over that particular management team. Uh, you know, they'll they'll have super majority yeah. voting rights and, and, and negative uh, – covenants and things of that sort, but those are legal issues that you have to structure around as well. Well, I think there's two things about this that you're, in your opening comments about this is really important. Number one, it's a great time to get into the business, but also the fact that private equity firms are coming in, they see an opportunity for their higher capital requirements that are either there by regulation, but the really capital requirements haven't gone up for fading for any jenny, but there is a general sense that to be successful, to be in this business, you really can't have the borderline, you know, two and a half million dollar net worth. You really got to go. It's got to be north of that. I'd love to get your thoughts just on the capitalization and what's necessary out there. And is that a driving factor for these private equity firms coming in? It is. It is a driving factor, I'm, and it's changed a great deal over the past couple of years. You're absolutely right. I'm, to be successful in this business, in this industry today, you have to have a very good, very strong financial capital base. And while the agencies themselves and, and, and the GSEs have been somewhat limited 
in in raising those particular capital requirements, the reality of the situation to do well out there, to deal with your warehouse lenders, to deal with your private investors, and 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 to survive the ups and downs of a business that are going that is going to go through ups and downs as we go through different econ- economic cycles, is really important, and uh, and, and it's becoming a uh, a capital intensive uh, industry. Absolutely. There it is. Well, you brought up in your uh, in your some of your comments about a change of control. Now, every transaction, we know there has to be notification to the warehouse lenders, the secondary market investors, and other players that have important relationships in the companies that are being where there's a change of control happening. Can you describe some of the issues that you have seen arise when these notifications are provided? I mean, how I'd love to get your thoughts. You're close to all the GSEs. Um, and their attitude about that. So let's start with their attitude, and then let's go to the issues. Yeah, it's it's a great question. And, you know, the first attitude that you have, especially if they're looking at an asset deal, let's say they're looking at just the sale of the assets itself, the first concern that comes into mind is what's going to happen to the seller? Is the seller going to have enough money left, enough resources left, enough capital there, to uh, to live up to their obligations. So the first attitude is, let me check out who the buyer is, both on a stock deal and looking at it from an asset perspective as well, because they want a certain amount of comfort, quite frankly, uh, mm-hmm. that 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 they're going to have, a, you know, a player that they know, they understand, and they can deal with. Uh, but they're also going to look at how the deal is structured. To see who's going to be requirement, who's going to be on the line for any repurchases, indemnifications. What if a problem arises later on? And that that's that's a that's become a big issue, because the truth of the matter is, Dave, some agencies, secondary market investors, and warehouse lenders, they can be pretty difficult to work with once yeah. a deal has been announced especially if that deal is an asset deal. And, and that's because of the fears that they, uh, they otherwise have. And yeah. so sellers need to know and understand that before they, before they even jump into any type of a transaction, because otherwise they might find themselves in a very, very difficult position. When you consider a make or buy decision, in other words, make a new company a de novo, and you're looking at private equity firms. There, there. I can understand why a private equity firm would want to, you know, try to capture the talent, the policy procedures, all the things that go into building a business. And and, and there are hosts of them. So there's there's good understanding why they might. But is a purchase always the best way to go? Is is there, are there times where you should just start a de novo and start from scratch and hire a really experienced team? Is give it the pros and cons on that from your perspective. From a legal perspective, well, it depends. It depends on who you are. Okay, for a private for a private equity firm, for example, yes, the purchase is the way to go, because they don't have the platform. They want to purchase the platform, and they don't have the expertise within their within their fund itself, within their firm itself, to run the operation itself. So you know, and and, and most private equity firms don't want to get into this in a small way. They want to grow a business. Uh, and, and, you know, business that they recognize they have the capital to, uh, to take a significant amount of market share uh, and, and grow along those particular lines. So it depends on 
it depends on who the player is. So for private equity, it doesn't make a lot of sense to start a de novo company. Yeah. But what you would typically see happen is they would buy a platform and then they build off of that. And some of that building will be internal. Uh, and will be homegrown, and some of it will be through acquisitions and growth along those lines. And part of that, part of that, Dave, that depends on what the market itself looks like. I mean, if you own if you own a company right now, and you're not going to see the growth that you think you're going to see, and your numbers aren't going to be the same because the margins are thinner, this is not a bad time to right. grab up some margin, uh, some market share. That's a good time to go on the outside and to do and to do those acquisitions. Now there are other companies for which it makes a lot of sense to grow a company de novo. I mean, you've seen in the news that uh, Redfin is starting its own right. mortgage company. That makes a lot Love of it. sense. And they yep. have time, and they have the luxury of time, and they're starting it slowly. They'll do it in one state, then they'll do it in two states, and they'll see how it works out, and they'll work w- their way through it, and they'll grow it in a way that's consistent with their business model right now, which is really uh, dependent uh, you know, on, on technology. But it all right. depends on, on, on what entity it is that's jumping into this marketplace. Let's talk about multiple owners. You know, you have a law firm. I think, if I understand correctly, you have partners in that business. Anytime you have more than one owner, like so many of the independent mortgage bankers that are out there, which have been, um, you know, usually started by or built around one individual, what challenges do you confront throughout a course of a sale of a process when there are multiple owners? Well, you know, a buyer generally, if there's going to be a sale, the buyer wants the entire company. They don't typically just want a piece of the company, and they don't want to deal with your other owner. So it doesn't matter if your other owner owns 50% or owns 5%. uh, You typically have to get all owners on the same page. And that creates some problems sometimes, and there are different ways of dealing with that. I mean, one alternative is one owner buys out the other one before entering into the sales process itself. And they just... And they just have to be careful about that because you've got to do that in a fair and orderly way. Otherwise, you may be accused of, in fact, buying them out at a low price when you had something else in your pocket uh, uh, you know, to sell it to someone at a much higher p- price. You know, what's really important with companies is structuring it right to begin with. They have to make sure their bylaws, their members' agreements, you know, their governing documents – have drag-along rights. In other words, if you're going to sell, you, the, other, the other owners have to jump in and sell as well. They've got you know, to be in the deal. They've got to participate and, uh, and be a part of that negotiation. Very, very difficult to, uh, to sell a company where you have uh, some owners or investors that, uh, that go along with that particular sale. That, that yeah. creates a problem. Yeah, and also the multiple, multiple multiple agendas that can come into that. So that's really a good wisdom is consolidate ownership before you do that and then proceed that. that that's that's some good wisdom. You know, for a company that's been profitable for five or six years, you know, and, and someone's negotiating the purchase price, how much should they rely on an earnout component versus trying to get all their money up front? Where, I mean, you're seeing a lot of the deals. You advise on a lot of deals. By the way, for those of you who are listening, if you're 